Chapter 6 The Sycophants One day in February 2007, Hayes was chatting with a J.P. Morgan trader named Stuart Wiley. The American bank had a thriving trading business in London, an operation so big that it was spread across multiple buildings one in Canary Wharf, one near the ancient London Wall, and another in an ornate stone building on the north bank of the Thames. That sat above one of London's biggest vaults of gold bullion. Wiley and Hayes had gotten to know each other through brokers back when Hayes worked in London. Though mere acquaintances, Hayes, not the best at grasping social boundaries, thought it appropriate to see if Wiley could lean on whoever handled J.P. Morgan's LIBOR data to nudge it down slightly. The answer was no, but Wiley hardly faulted Hayes for asking. Unfortunately, he said, J.P. Morgan's submitters have gone all, we need to be independent on us. So, unfortunately, nothing much I can do for a while. No worries, Hayes said. My guys are reasonable, so just let me know when you need something. As it happened, Wiley did need something. He was looking for six month yen LIBOR to remain low for the following week. Hayes said he'd see what he could do to help. Footnote. Before long, J.P. Morgan would install a new LIBOR submitter, one whom Wiley viewed as more amenable to requests from traders. So, do you wander over, give him the odd Mars bar, and say, you know, end of the year, we'll sort you out? An ICAP broker asked after Wiley shared the good news. Yes, Wiley replied. End footnote. Brent Davies. Who had mentored Hayes when he joined RBS straight out of college, was still working at the Scottish Bank. In 2007, Hayes started pinging him with requests to get RBS's submissions up or down. Davies was skeptical that Hayes's requests would have any effect, but he dutifully passed them on. There were a few other traders Hayes could turn to. Otherwise, he viewed most competitors as enemies. You're in a war, he would explain later. At the end of the day, this is a sort of zero sum game, and you're up against people who are fighting for the same customers. You're up against people who you're trading with on a competitive basis, and there's a winner and a loser. And so, you know, there isn't a lot of time for friendships. What about golfing with rival traders? Did that sound like fun? Unless you're going to hit them with the club, no. While the ICAP crew seemed to be able to sway LIBOR by passing slightly skewed data along to banks, Hayes figured that he could amplify the effect by enlisting another trusted broker. He had just the man, Terry Farr. Lots of traders approached him for guidance on where LIBOR was heading. And the charismatic, happy go lucky broker was an expert at fostering goodwill and then calling in favors. That was what Hayes wanted him to do now call in favors. If Hayes needed LIBOR lower, he would ask Farr to reach out to traders or rate submitters at a few banks. The maneuver required a subtle, deft touch. A bank wouldn't just adhere to a random request, especially one passed on behalf of a trader at a rival bank, unless, that is, it had good reason to do so. But in the back scratching, quid pro quo world of traders and brokers, 
there often were plenty of reasons. Doing a favor on a LIBOR submission was really no different than doing a favor by taking someone out to a boozy night at the club. Farr tackled the task with gusto, enlisting his fellow R.P. Martin brokers to phone their contacts too. Sometimes, Hayes drew up specific suggestions about which traders and banks Farr should target. One thing that made this tricky, Farr told Hayes, was that the LIBOR submitters at banks like Deutsche Bank and Dutch lender Rabobank were taking instructions from their own interest rate traders. Why would they field requests from Hayes if someone who worked at their own bank was making a contradictory request? They wouldn't. That was frustrating news for Hayes, but it contributed to his impression about the widespread nature of banks goosing LIBOR. Everyone seemed to be doing it. What was less common was the extra mile that Hayes was taking it, enlisting brokers and rival traders in his efforts to influence the LIBOR submissions of other banks. It's not clear that Hayes, 27 years old at the time, detected that distinction. Blurry boundaries, like nonverbal cues, often were invisible to him. In any case, Hayes was a pioneer of these aggressive new tactics. He viewed his job as pushing things to the max to make money for his bank. That's what good traders did. They ruthlessly hunted for tiny inefficiencies and loopholes they could exploit to gain a leg up on rivals or the broader market. Nobody ever told him it was inappropriate, legally, ethically, or otherwise, to lobby outsiders for help on LIBOR. What kept him up at night wasn't that what he was doing was wrong. It was that he wasn't doing it well enough. Hayes was so open about and preoccupied with his strategy that he would change the status on his Facebook page to reflect his daily desires for LIBOR to move up or down, a self-deprecating poke at his nerdy fixation. At night, he dreamed of the rate. When it didn't move in a favorable direction, Hayes often lost his composure, ranting to Alikulov that he didn't understand why rival traders didn't accede to his and his broker's requests. While pushing LIBOR around only took up a few minutes of his frenetic days, his obsession was overpowering. And so Hayes decided to get his younger stepbrother, Peter O'Leary, involved. O'Leary had come into Hayes's life when Hayes was 11 years old and his mother remarried. O'Leary and his brother, Ben, moved in with Hayes and his younger brother, Robin. Hayes liked his new stepfather, Tim, and got along well with Peter and Ben. Now Peter was looking to follow in Hayes' professional footsteps. He landed an entry-level trading gig in the New York office of the British bank HSBC. After six months there, he reluctantly moved back to London with HSBC. As Hayes knew from his own experience several years earlier, traders like O'Leary on a training scheme were just a rung or two above janitors in the pecking order at big international banks. They were there to run errands and, if they were lucky, learn a thing or two through osmosis. The last thing they should do is bother their senior colleagues. One day in April 2007, after Hayes had wrapped up his trading and played a little Pac-Man, he called O'Leary. After catching up about whether his stepbrother missed New York, he did badly, 
Hayes started explaining how his LIBOR-dependent trading strategy worked. O'Leary eagerly listened, lapping up the knowledge. I've got a mate at RBS who set it down at 0.64 for me, Hayes said. He noted that a contact at Bank of America had seemingly disregarded his requests. Can't stand B of A, Hayes said. B of A, boo, O'Leary parroted. Then Hayes cut to the chase. Did O'Leary know his HSBC colleague who was in charge of the bank's yen LIBOR submissions? Yes, kind of. His name was Chris Porter, called Darcy because he seemed posh. O'Leary and Darcy had run into each other a few times. If you can, have a word with those guys, Hayes started. Just say, if you can set a low yen three-month LIBOR, you'd really help my brother out. O'Leary laughed, but Hayes wasn't joking. Seriously, man, he continued, I've got several million buck fixes. In other words, Hayes explained, for every basis point that LIBOR declined, UBS stood to nab a roughly $1 million profit. O'Leary was stunned. He had no idea Hayes was rolling the dice so aggressively. Hayes seemed pleased to have an admiring youngster to whom he could trumpet the magnitude of his trades. The notional is massive, he said, referring to the underlying size of the trade. Footnote. The notional value refers to the headline size of the instruments that the derivative is referencing, as in the $100 swap that ABC Corp. entered into with Giant Bank. The actual amount of money that changes hands in the derivative transaction is much lower than the notional amount. End footnote. I'm talking about trillions of yen. O'Leary said he'd see what he could do. Nothing happened. Hayes tried again in June. O'Leary said he'd drop his colleague a line. Just keep it super casual, Hayes advised. The next day, Hayes sent O'Leary a reminder, referring to Darcy as O'Leary's mate. Will do. O'Leary responded. For the record, he's definitely not my mate. O'Leary was feeling a bit sheepish about making the request. Dunno if he'll do anything on it, seeing as he doesn't really know me and is massively more senior than me, he cautioned. Well, no harm in asking, Hayes typed. O'Leary banged out a quick instant message to his colleague. High six million yen LIBOR would be good according to my brother. The reply came back, will do my best. A few hours passed. HSBC kept its LIBOR submission unchanged from the day before. O'Leary's skepticism had been well-founded. Hayes decided this was pointless, and he had a bout of remorse. He hadn't viewed O'Leary's efforts as likely to actually help, but, based on statistical probabilities, the more people he contacted for help, the greater his odds were of success. It was like buying an extra lottery ticket. Later that day, Hayes told Reed that he was done asking O'Leary for favors. I don't want to get him in trouble. He followed up with an apologetic phone call to O'Leary. I don't think I'm going to bother asking for your help on the LIBORs again, because he didn't shift it at all, he said. But also, I don't want to put you in that position, I've decided. In retrospect, he probably thinks, that cheeky young lad. Hayes followed up with an instant message, 
apologizing a second time. Then the two groused about work. O'Leary had to be in the office the following weekend. Bit upsetting, he groaned. Sorry, mate. Welcome to banking, Hayes said. The bonuses will follow later. Usually about two years or so. Yeah, we'll see, his stepbrother replied. All this might have seemed harmless, or at least only harmful to other major banks that were up to similar tricks, except that there were other people and institutions, far from Wall Street and Tokyo and the City of London, that were also dabbling in financial products linked to LIBOR and its brethren. Jeffrey Layden was a computer geek turned salesman who, after attending a technical college in Milwaukee and spending five years as a consultant at Southwestern Bell, had moved to Florida in the mid-1980s. For the next two decades, he lived outside Orlando and worked at a series of computer and telecommunications companies, keeping mainframes online and helping address big clients' computing needs. Balding, with ruddy cheeks, wire-rimmed glasses, and a sandy mustache, Layden had a couple of hobbies. One was sailing. He loved taking a boat out on Lake Monroe, where he was a member of the local sailing association. Another passion was investing. From the comfort of his home, he traded stocks, options, and futures via an online brokerage account. He was doing well enough that he toyed with the idea of quitting his job and becoming a full-time day trader, someone who could even help educate other wannabe investors. By 2006, Layden had discovered a new area to wager on, Japanese interest rates. He didn't know much about Japan, but derivatives linked to the yen were becoming increasingly popular after the Bank of Japan's rate hike, and he decided to give it a go. He spent thousands of dollars, a considerable gamble for a small-time trader, on futures contracts on the Merck that would pay out if Tybor declined. He had no way of knowing that, on the opposite side of the planet, a posse of traders was working to push Tybor in the opposite direction. By the time Layden's trades matured, his money had vaporized. Layden wasn't alone. In the years leading up to the financial crisis, public pension funds had been growing increasingly bold and creative in the gambles they made with their members' money. Markets were booming and it was hard to resist the temptation to leap for the double-digit annual returns that hedge funds and other professional money managers were attaining. So the Oklahoma Police Pension and Retirement System, a traditionally risk-averse fund, hired a bunch of asset managers to help it amp up its returns. Before long, the OPPRS, exactly the type of dumb-money clients that Hayes and his ilk battled for the right to do business with, was the proud owner of Japanese interest rate derivatives. Sure enough, the bets soured, a result, the fund would later claim, of manipulation by Hayes and his pals. A similar scenario played out in California. Calsters, the giant fund handling the retirement savings of the state's teachers, bought derivatives linked to LIBOR and TIBOR. Calsters would realize years later that it had paid inflated prices for those instruments because someone had pushed the benchmarks artificially higher. Hayes had never heard of Layden, probably couldn't point to Oklahoma on a map, 
and most likely didn't know what CalSTRS stood for, California State Teachers Retirement System. He viewed himself as operating within a closed system, facing off against other predatory professionals who were sufficiently sophisticated and often avaricious to deserve whatever they got. The perspective of the financial system as a playing field for these competitors, where amateurs were viewed as fair game if they were thought of at all, had been hammered into Hayes since he first set foot on a trading floor. It was a narrow, self-serving view, and its prevalence helped explain why the finance industry was heading for all sorts of trouble. But this was a game played hard, and if there were corners cut and envelopes pushed, well, that was just business. Before long, Hayes' tactics were becoming known in the marketplace. One day, a broker named Scott Harris was talking with Roger Darren, the UBS LIBOR submitter in Singapore. Harris had heard through the grapevine that Hayes had been leaning on LIBOR submitters. Darren pounced on the opportunity to badmouth his nemesis. He's been trying that for a while now, Darren explained, neglecting to mention that he had agreed to move LIBOR on Hayes' behalf at times in the past. Very embarrassing. Hope he gets buried, Harris said. Mike Pieri may not think he's such a golden boy anymore. Doubt Mike will learn, Darren lamented, almost sounding sad. Hayes wasn't venturing out on a limb alone. Pieri knew what his trader was up to, or should have, thanks to Hayes' repeated emails, instant messages, and in-person conversations. Every morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock, Hayes and Pieri gathered with more than a dozen colleagues in a conference room. Hayes tended to perch on a windowsill instead of crowding around the oval table. The participants discussed their plans to get LIBOR moved. It wasn't a secret. When senior executives cycled through Tokyo for periodic visits, they usually sat in on the meetings too. And when LIBOR moved in profitable ways, Hayes sometimes told Pieri that he owed Reed and Farr beers for their valuable assistance. At one point in 2007, Hayes and Ainsworth were preparing to head off on a week-long trip to Thailand. Hayes had delegated the task of picking the destination and hotel to Ainsworth, a nod to her persnickety standards and Hayes's general lack of interest in vacations. She informed Hayes that they would be staying at the Trisara Resort in Phuket, a tropical island off the west coast of the Thai Peninsula. Congratulate Sarah, Reed said when Hayes mentioned where they were heading. Probably the most expensive hotel in Asia. Thank God it's just one week, Hayes replied, before adding that Ainsworth would be footing half the bill. You have loads of money, Reed pointed out, which I should be saving for a house. Hayes was so stressed about a big batch of trades that were nearing fruition that he nearly canceled the vacation. Instead, he emailed Pieri, Alikulov, and two other UBS colleagues to remind them to ping the ICAP and R.P. Martin brokers if they needed LIBOR pushed one way or other. Reed, meanwhile, promised Hayes that he'd work hard to ensure that Goodman tweaked his run-throughs. And, sure enough, he repeatedly asked his London colleague to jack three- and six-month LIBOR higher. Goodman told Reed that the figures didn't reflect what he was seeing in the market, 
and then he did it anyway. Reed, unsatisfied, asked him to send out a revised run-through with the figures higher still. Noting that Hayes so far that month had paid ICAP 83,000 pounds in commissions, Goodman grudgingly complied. Footnote. Goodman would later say that the run-through was based on figures he was seeing in the market and wasn't an attempt to manipulate LIBOR. End footnote. In Phuket, Hayes and Ainsworth stayed in a waterfront villa at the secluded five-star resort. Calm turquoise waters lapped at the private white sand beach. Ainsworth relaxed in the sun, sipping champagne and getting spa treatments. There on the beach, it dawned on Hayes that he could now afford this high-rolling lifestyle. The bill at the end of the week was massive. He and Ainsworth usually split the tab. This time, feeling lavish, Hayes picked up the whole thing. By the standards of the brokerage industry, good old R.P. Martin was tiny. It had fewer than 200 employees in five countries, most of them in the firm's headquarters in an unmarked building on a narrow street in the heart of the city of London. The firm's roots traced back more than a century, and over time, R.P. Martin's specialty became helping banks trade currencies and other financial products that weren't available on public exchanges. One of its niches was catering to traders who focused on products linked to LIBOR. What R.P. Martin lacked in size, it made up for in scrappy enthusiasm. The firm's brokers were known for crashing parties thrown by rival companies in order to get face time with coveted clients. Some traders liked working with R.P. Martin because of its familial style and working-class culture, albeit one with six-figure salaries. The culture came straight from the top. David Mustard Kaplan tried to set his shop apart from larger rivals like ICAP and Tullet Prebon by cultivating a down-home feel. You're joining part of a family, he would tell new recruits. He incented his staff by giving them equity in the firm. To survive, R.P. Martin had to be aggressive, going the extra mile for clients. Until 2010, Mustard resisted even having a compliance department. The basic guiding principle governing employee conduct should be common sense, he thought, not a rigid set of rules. When he finally bowed to reality and created a compliance group, he did what he could to marginalize its employees. Warning the new department's chief not to inadvertently destabilize things, Mustard told him not to introduce any initiatives that would affect the brokers. The last thing Mustard needed was an intrusive Internal Affairs Bureau causing his stars to jump to competitors. That attitude trickled down. Cliff King had joined R.P. Martin in 1980. In 2006, Mustard tapped him to run a squad of brokers responsible for Japanese products, interest rate derivatives, and the like. King spent the bulk of his time tending to his own clients, which included traders at some giant banks. The way he saw it, his posse, which included Terry Farr, Lee Aaron, and Jim Gilmore, didn't require much supervision. They seemed to take care of themselves. It was a curious bunch. There was the motorcycle crashing, flip-flop wearing, ravioli-toting Farr. There was Aaron, 
whose nickname was short for Village Idiot. Gilmore, for his part, had been busted a few times as a teenager for minor offenses, left school at age 16, briefly trained to join the army, landed a job as a cabinet maker, and ultimately became a broker in the late 1980s. Slim, with slowly receding brown hair, Gilmore might once have passed for handsome, but when he was stressed or sleep deprived, he developed dark, puffy bags under his eyes. As the years went on, those bags became an almost permanent facial feature. Gilmore, whose salary was £75,000, was battling multiple scourges. His bank account was perpetually overdrawn. His colleagues annoyed him. And his wife, Lisa, with whom he had two daughters, seemed to derive great pleasure from calling him at work, either to update him on the squirrels and other mundane wildlife scurrying through their suburban backyard, or to harangue him for screwing up their TV recording device, interrupting her planned daytime viewing of Law and Order. Farr didn't have much history of success. Growing up, he was always the last one picked for soccer games, a mark of shame for someone coming up through the British school system. Year after year at R.P. Martin, his personnel files included paperwork explaining absences caused by an almost comical array of medical problems. In 2002, he was out with a viral infection, followed a few months later by what he described as blood poisoning caused by an arm infection. In early 2004, he fell victim to food poisoning. That was also the summer of his severe allergic reaction to a wasp sting, causing large swelling and infection and nausea. Later in 2004, he missed work due to tooth extraction causing severe discomfort. A few years later, he was out due to what he thought was swine flu. It turned out to be a cold, but it got him to temporarily ditch his pack a day smoking habit. But business had never been central to his sense of self. Indeed, what really animated Farr was his son Sam. When not riding motorcycles together, Farr enjoyed counseling the teenager on, among other topics, how to get women into bed. Mate, look, he told Sam on one occasion, if you want to have a little rub with some bird, you need to lower your sights a bit. Go for fat ones. In the summer of 2007, however, Farr was finally coming into his own at work, thanks to having hitched himself to two successful traders. Hayes was emerging as a star, and the business he kept sending Farr's way was generating buckets of commissions. But Hayes wasn't Farr's biggest client. That distinction belonged to a trader named Alexis Stenforce. Stenforce grew up in a small town in Finland near the Baltic Sea. Athletic, with high cheekbones, brown sideburns, and deep set brown eyes, he was the unusual combination of a runner and smoker. As a young man, he thought about going into academia. Instead, he took an internship at a German bank, where he handled the paperwork for derivatives transactions that the bank's traders executed. He became intrigued by the huge sums of money involved in transactions such as interest rate swaps. Often the ticket accompanying those trades would run well into the tens of millions of dollars. Another thing that caught his eye was the bizarre, rhyming acronyms that littered the terms of the transactions 
names like Libor and Tibor and Fibor and Pibor. A few years later, in 1995, he became an interest rate trader in a British bank's Stockholm office. Soon, he was the one executing big transactions pegged to Scandinavian benchmarks like Stibor, Nibor, Cybor, and Hellebor. While trading, he managed to co-write a paper about European currencies in a Finnish academic journal with a Swedish economics professor. Hardly normal fare for his peer group. Stenfors cycled through some of the world's biggest banks. In September 2001, he was working in London in the investment banking division of Credit Agricole when terrorists hijacked planes and crashed them into the World Trade Center in Manhattan. The French bank's New York offices were on the 92nd floor of the World Trade Center's North Tower, just below where the first plane crashed. 69 Credit Agricole employees perished that day. Early that afternoon in London, footage of the disaster was broadcast on the wall-mounted TVs around Credit Agricole's trading floor. Stenforce and his colleagues kept doing business as if nothing had happened. As weeks passed, Stenforce was increasingly chilled by his and his peers' amoral, unemotional reactions, and he wasn't alone. Traders at other banks, many of which had outposts in the twin towers, realized that their first instincts had not been to fret about their colleagues' well-being or the geopolitical implications of the attack, but instead to hunt for profitable trading opportunities. Then again, didn't money make the world go round? Their recollections were tinged with regret, but for most, just barely. Stenforce certainly kept trucking along in his career, eventually landing in the London office of the Wall Street giant Merrill Lynch. In 2007, 36 years old, married and with two young daughters, Stenforce, trading currencies and interest rate derivatives, including those pegged to the Japanese yen, was one of the savviest, most ambitious risk takers in London's booming markets. His prowess was reflected in the astronomical sum, about $120 million, that he earned for his bank in a single year. Stenforce didn't fully embrace the industry's wild ethos, not a surprise given his academic tendencies, and jokingly booked squash and tennis courts under the name Patrick Bateman, the fictional investment banker and serial killer in the book and film American Psycho. But when it came to earning money, he was as ruthless as anyone. There were no limits, at least none that Stenforce knew of, restricting how much risk he could take with the bank's money. Year after year, the bank gave him budgets, industry lingo for the amount of revenue he was expected to generate, that stretched into nine digits. Stenforce and Farr were tight. Stenforce thought the broker was friendly and honest and it felt nice to do business with an underdog firm and an up-from-his-bootstraps broker who was making a fraction of what someone at a rival firm would earn. The tandem rises of Hayes and Stenforce were excellent news for Farr, especially as his two clients got to know each other. In 2007, the pair happened to be seated next to each other at a Christmas party ICAP hosted for traders. The soiree featured treasures carted up from Michael Spencer's wine cellar and a gaggle of beautiful women hired to act as hostesses 
As they milled around the room, sitting on the traders' laps and laughing at their jokes, an uncomfortable haze and stenforce spent the entire evening immersed in an intense conversation about financial markets and trading minutiae. Obsessive and at the top of their games, each could tell that the other derived something approaching pure bliss from the subject. There weren't very many people in the world who could carry on a discussion like this, with such fluency and at such a high level. After clicking at the ICAP party, Hayes and Stenforce started trading together more and more. Hayes soon became one of Stenforce's biggest trading partners, and they tended to automatically route their transactions through FAR, who pocketed fat commission payments for almost no work. As the fees added up, FAR's renown grew. Tullid Prebon tried to hire him, dangling a salary of nearly $300,000 plus roughly $200,000 in upfront cash. But FAR loved working at R.P. Martin, in particular its tight-knit, casual vibe. Mustard eventually convinced him to stay by handing him nearly $100,000 in cash as well as a roughly $100,000 interest-free loan. The loan allowed Farr, who regarded himself as terrible with money, to settle some of his outstanding credit card debts, as well as to cover some of the ballooning costs of a home renovation that had left him without an indoor bathroom for four weeks. And he was promoted to manager. The elevated status didn't mean much. Farr was managing only one employee, Gilmore, signing off on his expenses and making sure he showed up on time and didn't take too many sick days. Later, when rival brokerage, BGC, tried to stage a raid on R.P. Martin employees, Farr was singled out for a loyalty bonus of about $40,000. Before long, his son Sam would join Dad at work as a broker in training. To the frustration of some of his brokers, Hayes remained uninterested in being lavishly entertained. He preferred to sit at home with a bucket of fried chicken from KFC and a tall glass of orange juice, followed by a hot bath. One evening, a desperate broker showed up outside UBS's Tokyo office and pleaded to let him take Hayes out to dinner. The broker needed to show his bosses he was entertaining the star client. Hayes finally relented and then led him to a nearby Burger King where the broker spotted a rat scuttling across the floor. That's not to say Hayes was uniformly obstinate. In London, after he'd repeatedly rebuffed Noel Cryan's offers of dinner, the broker had come up with an alternative. Hayes could take Ainsworth out for an expensive meal and then get reimbursed by Tullet. Reed treated Hayes and Ainsworth to a similar Christmas feast in 2006, leaving his personal credit card details on file at the restaurant and then getting paid back by ICAP. As time went on and Hayes' stature grew, brokers became more creative about coming up with such goodies. They lined up expensive sports tickets for Hayes' friends and family back in England. Nigel Delmar occasionally stopped by the home of Hayes' brother Robin, delivering expensive booze or other gifts. Robin told Hayes he thought the practice was weird. Hayes responded that it was just how the industry worked. Robin wasn't convinced. It seemed a little like bribery. But there was no point in arguing with his stubborn older brother. Another goodie came in the form of win-win trades.
Brokers sometimes were approached about possible trades by pension funds or other long-term investors who weren't sensitive to small price variations. These dumb money clients, or muppets, which bought something and then held onto it for months, maybe years, didn't fit into the industry's carnivorous culture and weren't especially good for the trading business. Brokers, face-to-face with one of these sloths, had the distinct pleasure of finding a predator to take the other side of the trade, and Hayes was increasingly hearing the words, I've got a gift for you. The lucky trader, in this case him, would be able to do the deal at a favorable price that a more sophisticated institution, such as a fast-moving hedge fund, would never accept. There was one final way brokers could thank Hayes for all the lucrative commissions, and that was by continuing to help him with LIBOR. Hayes's move to Tokyo had wreaked havoc on Darrell Reed's personal life. He had dropped his other clients in order to cater full-time to the increasingly lucrative and combustible Hayes. Reed's nocturnal office hours meant that he only rarely saw his family. Eventually, Joanna gave him an ultimatum. He needed to do something, anything, to regain a normal life. Reed was inclined to agree. He was feeling like a failure as a husband and a father. The family had already been toying with moving to New Zealand, where Joanna had relatives. The original idea was for ICAP to temporarily keep him on the payroll as a favor, allowing him to get a visa, but not requiring him to set foot in the New Zealand office. But Hayes's ongoing success in Tokyo sparked a new idea. Reed could work from the brokerage's small Wellington quarters, now only three time zones ahead of his client, so he could revert to a relatively normal schedule. The plan was for Reed to do it for a year and then find something more fulfilling and less stressful to do with his life, perhaps teaching. In the meantime, his office hours would be scaled back to merely 10.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. The Reed clan moved to Wellington in April 2007. The transition proved harder than expected. In the Southern Hemisphere, winter was approaching. Reed missed the hubbub of ICAP's frenetic London office. The Wellington outpost, staffed by perhaps a dozen people, was a morgue by comparison. Shouting matches, sometimes good-natured, sometimes less so, had been common in London, as were friendships with colleagues. Now heads would turn at any conversation that involved a raised voice. Reed figured the fact that he was working less and in a better mood would help with the transition. But Joanna, home alone without any adult interactions, missed her friends. The winter weather wasn't helping. She found limited distraction by working on the design of a new house they were planning to build. The irony was that, just as the Reeds started to settle down, Hayes was thinking about returning to England. Ainsworth, after getting off to a fast start in Japan, now was entertaining a fantasy of opening a clothing store back home. Independent woman, Reed remarked sarcastically. Fantastic. Hayes, meanwhile, missed the food, his family, the ability to communicate relatively easily, the weather, he hated Tokyo's hot summer days and longed for soggy England, and especially Queen's Park Rangers. Maybe he could move back to London, enroll in business school, 
and pursue a profession less intense than trading. He gave himself at most another couple of years in Tokyo. I will definitely need a rest, he told Reed. Once Reed heard that, he decided that he would throw in the towel whenever Hayes left. If Joanna hadn't acclimated to New Zealand by then, they too would return to England. If teaching didn't work out, maybe he'd take up gardening or even become a postman three days a week to break up the monotony of early retirement. In the meantime, Reed spent virtually the entire day at work on the phone with his lone client. They had a direct, always on phone line connecting them, and Reed would later estimate that they typically talked between 50 and 300 times a day. Back in ICAP's London office, Danny Wilkinson oversaw the group of other yen brokers who catered to Hayes and his rivals. Seated in a T shaped formation near the center of the brokerage floor, the group was surrounded by tall whiteboards on which a junior broker would scrawl all the prices the brokers were seeing so that they didn't have to rely on hearing each other. They used an elaborate series of hand gestures to communicate. Wilkinson was fat, his hair buzzed practically to the scalp, with doe like blue eyes accentuated by long eyelashes and a penchant for wearing button down shirts. That were only barely buttoned. He loved wine, stockpiling vintage bottles at home, and happily recommending new varieties for Reed to sample in New Zealand. Wilkinson's watermelon red complexion was the subject of vigorous ribbing, a crimson faced emoticon installed on an electronic chat program sometimes was used to make fun of him. During a London lunch with Hayes and his stepbrother Ben O'Leary, Wilkinson boasted about his wild escapades. Among them hosting a crazed party on a yacht in Marbella, Spain. O'Leary dubbed him Danny the Animal, and it wasn't affectionate. Wilkinson's colleagues didn't impress O'Leary either. He called the whole group the sycophants because of how the brokers sucked up to Hayes. The brokers were so offensive to O'Leary that he decided not to pursue a career in finance and to go into medicine instead. Wilkinson had not always been so feral. He grew up outside London, the son of a welder. As a child, he was plagued by severe asthma and other ailments, confining him to hospital beds for long stretches. Bored with school, he dropped out when he was 17, hoping to go out in the world to earn some money. His first job, in the early 1980s, back when he enjoyed a relatively slim 34 inch waist, Was working as a clerk at a retail bank near his hometown. In 1985, some of his buddies had earned enough working in the city to buy themselves flashy cars. Wilkinson wanted one too. He snagged a paper pushing job in the London office of an Australian bank and eventually was promoted to the role of a junior trader. But he was required to take a regulatory exam, which he failed multiple times. Precluding him from being a full trader. After taking some time off to work as a DJ on the Spanish island of Mallorca, he decided to become a broker, for which there were no test taking requirements. Wilkinson dashed off dozens of letters to prospective employers. He got a single reply from a brokerage that would become part of the ICAP empire. He started in November 1989 as a trainee. Reporting to Daryl Reed. 
The 23-year-old's annual salary was 8,000 pounds, hardly the road to riches or sleek sports cars. But after a year or two, he was promoted to a full-fledged broker. That meant he could do things like speak to real live clients, once he got some. Wilkinson flipped through a financial services directory book and started cold-calling banks. He was gregarious and persistent and had street smarts and eventually landed a small handful of clients. Wilkinson had found his calling. Tethered to some successful traders, his career took off. In the late 1990s, he was promoted to running the Yen Desk. He managed about a half dozen employees, including Reed. ICAP's hierarchy was so flat that Wilkinson was only a few rungs below Spencer. Wilkinson, by then married and with two sons, fit right into ICAP's frat house culture. Brokers were openly rude to each other, even to their bosses. Profanity-dense shouting matches were common. Wilkinson sometimes would slap David Casterton, one of ICAP's top-ranking executives just below Spencer, on his hairless head and call him Baldy. Casterton's more prevalent nickname was Clumpy. When he went bald, his hair had fallen out in clumps. Wilkinson's brokers would occasionally and affectionately refer to him as a cunt. On the frequent occasions that he showed up to work with a severe hangover and fell behind on the constant flow of trades and data pouring in, he would lie to clients that ICAP's computer systems were suffering technical problems. With Hayes, Wilkinson was confronting one of the strangest clients he had ever encountered. He noticed that Hayes would make bids or offers in the market, but would specify that they were only good for certain banks or even individual traders. In other words, he might be willing to do a specific trade at a certain price with a Deutsche Bank trader and the same trade at a less favorable price with a Merrill Lynch trader. At one point, Hayes simply refused to consider any trades with Morgan Stanley. This was basically unheard of, not to mention financially irrational. It made sense to Hayes, who didn't see the point in doing business with traders he found objectionable. Wilkinson came to view Hayes as a brilliant, obsessive nutcase, perhaps the most talented trader he'd ever encountered. He wondered whether Hayes was autistic. Wilkinson was hardly the only broker perplexed by the star trader's behavior. When Hayes got his mind set on something, he wouldn't let it go. When Tradition was planning to dismiss a broker he liked, Hayes intervened proclaiming that if the broker wasn't given a generous exit package, Hayes would sever his relationship with Tradition's Tokyo unit. The threat worked. In the eat-what-you-kill finance industry, it was a rare example of someone using his own leverage to benefit someone else. The broker's mistreatment offended Hayes's sense of justice. There was a difference between right and wrong, and this was wrong, and Hayes had the power to make it right. But while Hayes was loyal to those he considered to be his friends, others were terrified of his propensity for unpredictable blow-ups and retribution. One day, Danny Brand, in Tullet's Hong Kong office, tardily responded to one of Hayes's queries. Panicked, Brand explained his absence by claiming he'd been kidnapped. Hayes believed him. Hayes didn't seem to care what anyone thought about his behavior. 
over the squawk box, he would bellow his and other banks' trading positions to anyone within earshot. He was aware of other banks' positions because, as a market maker, he sometimes had helped them amass those positions. This was not a good way to make friends. Once, Wilkinson had been on the phone with a client at HSBC when Hayes started shouting about that bank's trades. Who the fuck is that? The HSBC trader demanded, hearing Hayes in the background. Who's telling you what we're doing? On another occasion, Colin Goodman was strolling around ICAP's brokerage floor. As he walked past the derivatives crew, he overheard a voice booming through a squawk box, Get those fucking LIBORs down! It was Hayes. Someone promptly silenced the line. Goodman exchanged awkward glances with a couple of colleagues, then walked away, shaking his head. He's got to be stupid, Goodman thought to himself. Still, the whole ICAP crew was pulling for Hayes. The money was just too good not to. In October 2006, Hayes' first full month of trading, the 129 trades he transacted through the brokerage had generated 72,889 pounds in fees. By the end of the year, the fees were flowing so fast that the two companies decided it would be simpler for UBS to automatically pay a flat fee of 70,000 pounds, at the time roughly $140,000 a month, to cover his commissions. Not an uncommon arrangement for banks and brokerages to strike. When Reed couldn't get his way with Goodman, he often enlisted Wilkinson to lobby on his behalf. Wilkinson generally complied, although he tended to be more subtle than Reed in the way he worded his requests. Footnote. Wilkinson would later say that he never tried to get Goodman to skew his run-throughs inappropriately, and that he often was trying to con traders or his colleagues by only appearing to help. End footnote. Other times, Reed turned to different ICAP colleagues. Try to hold it, six-month LIBOR, please, at 0.86, he requested in July 2007. Collins says his shoulders are aching holding them up, a colleague replied. He's a strong lad. I can smell him from here, Reed joked. When Reed moved to New Zealand, the UBS fee was split four ways. A chunk went to Wilkinson's team in London. Another slice went to ICAP's New Zealand office. A third portion went to ICAP's Japanese affiliate, which shared the relationship with Hayes because he was based in Tokyo. The remainder went to Reed himself. That worked out well for a lot of people, but Colin Goodman, who wasn't part of Wilkinson's team, wasn't one of them. Still, his daily run-throughs were an important part of why ICAP was so valuable to Hayes. And by early 2007, the requests to tinker with the run-throughs were so frequent, from Hayes and other traders, that Goodman christened himself Lord Libor, replacing his previous sobriquet of Lord Luncheon. Reed played along, deferentially addressing Goodman as My Lord. When Hayes first heard the nickname, he figured maybe Goodman hailed from a line of aristocrats. Goodman fumed about not getting a cut of Hayes's lucrative commissions. While Reed, in 2006, pulled in £202,780 in compensation, a figure that would more than double the following year, 
Goodman's salary was just £80,000. He received a small bonus, too. They were kind of like Formula One drivers, and I was a little guy in a pedal car, Goodman reflected. One day in 2007, Reed emailed his latest LIBOR request. Goodman had a snappy retort. Tell Dan, broker number 103, a reference to Goodman's employee number in ICAP's internal computer system. That system was used, among other purposes, to assign commission payments to specific brokers, and Goodman was instructing Reed to instruct Wilkinson to allocate him a cut of the action or risk non-compliance with Hayes' requests. A few days later, Wilkinson gave Goodman commissions on a trade, likely funneling at least a few thousand dollars into the latter's paycheck. But Goodman, who had mentored Wilkinson when he first became a broker, had a nagging feeling that he wasn't getting his fair share, an impression that Hayes reinforced back in London that spring. Out for beers with some ICAP brokers, Hayes and Goodman found themselves talking alone. After a few drinks, the conversation shifted from market trends to money. Perhaps you ought to get a slice of the action, Hayes suggested. That sounded about right to Goodman. Over the next several days, he sent a series of increasingly agitated emails to Wilkinson. I get the dribs and drabs, he groused. Life is tough enough over here without having to double-guess the libors every morning and get zipperdy doo When another big trade from Hayes landed, with no cut for Goodman, the broker finally lost his cool. Happy days for you, he told Wilkinson. Fuck all for me again. He signed his email, Milord no more, Mr. Libor, stripping himself of his noble honorific. That got Wilkinson's attention, although he detected a pattern of Goodman getting especially worked up after he'd had a couple of lunchtime drinks with his colleagues. I have been thinking of ways of sorting you out, he said. He proposed lunch. At a high-priced sushi bar in the bottom floor of ICAP's building, Wilkinson agreed to pay Goodman a regular bonus for his efforts. Wilkinson then shifted his attention to a scheme to wring more revenue out of UBS. The plan was for Reed to plant the seed with Hayes that Goodman might pull the plug on the whole LIBOR assistance arrangement if UBS didn't agree to fork over even more money to ICAP. The tactic worked. On July 1st, UBS agreed to pay ICAP a monthly fixed fee of £75,000, £5,000 more than the prior arrangement. There was no doubt about whom the agreement was being negotiated for. Goodman was to be recognized for his help with calling LIBOR fixes, which UBS found invaluable. David Casterton, a.k.a. Clumpy, emailed a colleague. Footnote. ICAP would later say that Casterton didn't realize that the payment was related to LIBOR manipulation. End footnote. Goodman thought the £5,000 payment was nothing more than a scrap that amounted to a bit of a kick in the teeth. To supplement, on a trip back to London, Hayes took him to a vintage wine shop and bought him a couple of bottles of nice champagne. If Hayes had realized what was really going on, he might not have been feeling so magnanimous. 
While Reed at times was genuinely trying to help him with LIBOR, he had stumbled upon an enticing shortcut in his efforts to please a crucial client. Reed didn't need to tell the truth. Hayes had no way of checking whether Reed was, for example, actually passing on his LIBOR-moving requests to his colleagues, or if those requests actually had their desired effects. And even if he did have a way of checking, the gullible, literal-minded Hayes wasn't one to detect dishonesty. So he had no clue that much of the assistance that Reed claimed to be providing was illusory. Reed was lying to Hayes, and it wasn't just once or twice. He was lying habitually, as a matter of course. Hayes had been under the mistaken impression that Goodman, like Farr, had an informal, casual way of spreading the LIBOR misinformation through the market. He hadn't realized that there was actually an email that Goodman sent every morning. Before Hayes and Goodman met, Reed instructed Goodman, please don't tell him too much about your run-throughs you send out, as I often lie about what you have sent if it doesn't suit him. To be extra safe, Reed had gotten in touch with Wilkinson with a similar cautionary message. If Hayes phones you about LIBOR, Reed had said, I have asked you to pull in favors to keep three-month LIBOR up. Reed hadn't actually relayed that request. He was just covering himself in case Hayes started asking questions. So it had gone for a while, and so it would continue. When Reed told Hayes that his West LB buddy was out of town, and that's why the German bank's LIBOR submission moved the wrong way, it was a lie. The reality was that his old schoolmate just wasn't in a position to help that day. Ditto when he told Hayes that Goodman had exhausted his goodwill with a trader at another bank. Goodman just didn't want to expend his goodwill on Hayes's behalf. When he told Hayes that other ICAP colleagues had convinced an RBS trader to move LIBOR in a helpful direction, the move was just a lucky coincidence. And when he revealed to Hayes what numbers Goodman was disseminating, sometimes Goodman wasn't even at work. Time after time, Hayes bought the lies, and his friend Reed kept churning them out. The MGM Grand Garden Arena, tucked in the bowels of the bright green hotel and casino on the Strip in Las Vegas, was jammed with a capacity crowd of 16,459. Many in the audience on this Saturday night in late 2007 were rowdy Brits. Some were playing trumpets. Others pounded on drums and belted out, God save the Queen. Thousands of boos rained down on the singer who performed the Star-Spangled Banner. The fans had flown in for what was being billed as an epic boxing match, Ricky Hatton versus Floyd Mayweather. The Brits were there to cheer on Manchester native Hatton, whose boxing trunks this night had a Union Jack flag splayed on the posterior. The fight was a hard ticket to come by. Hatton and Mayweather were both undefeated. The winner would be crowned the welterweight champion of the world. The crowd was sprinkled with celebrities, including Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. And there, sitting not far from the ring in a roped-off VIP section, was Hayes, flanked by Charlie, his childhood friend, and Nigel Delmar. The tickets were part of a VIP package that included unlimited food and booze, as well as the killer seats. 
The tickets had cost more than $3,000 apiece, but Hayes and his pals hadn't paid. ICAP had picked up the tab. The weird thing was, no ICAP brokers were at the event with Hayes. Delmar, who worked for Tullet Prebon, had formed a tight bond with Hayes, regularly coming over to his apartment on Friday nights to watch TV, and Tullet had covered the costs of the three men's hotel and some of their nights out. It hadn't taken much arm twisting for Delmar to get his boss to sign off, given that Hayes had already raked in $50 million in profits that year. Here was a client they couldn't afford not to entertain. Similar logic explained why ICAP was paying for the VIP tickets. David Casterton had personally okayed the expense after he nailed down a £75,000-a-month UBS deal. Whilst I do not usually sanction buying expensive tickets for customers, he explained to another executive, in the unusual case that Tom is, I feel it is worth it. Las Vegas was an appropriate place for traders and brokers to go for a weekend of debauchery. It wasn't just that the desert city was synonymous with gambling. Through years of rapid, speculative real estate development, Vegas also had become a symbol of the easy credit and ubiquitous home ownership that defined America in the early and mid-2000s. By the time of the Hatton-Mayweather bout, the foundation of that epic boom was starting to crumble. More and more homeowners were falling behind on their mortgage payments. Banks and mortgage brokers that had splurged on reckless loans were going belly up. Soon, Las Vegas's outer tracks would be littered with abandoned, boarded-up, and half-built homes. Of course, Hayes and his ilk weren't responsible for that mess. They hadn't doled out the ill-considered loans, even if some of their employers had. But the instrument that Hayes wagered on most voraciously, LIBOR, was embedded in many of the home loans that had fueled the frenzy, and now were at the heart of the great American mortgage bust. Flying into Las Vegas's McCarran International Airport, it would have been hard for Hayes and his pals to miss the impact of the giant bubble. Plot after plot of cookie-cutter housing developments, some of them still under construction, stretching for miles into what not long ago had been barren desert. The fight that night lasted ten rounds. In the final round, Mayweather landed several vicious blows. Hatton staggered back to his feet, but the referee ended the fight. Mayweather the victor by way of TKO. Luckily, Hayes and his disappointed friends had plenty of other fun still to look forward to. The night was young. And it was all, of course, on someone else's dime.